We're the Denver Broncos cheerleaders, and you're listening to Sports Crunch with DCROM. This is Sports Crunch with DCROM. I'm your host, David Cromwell. And well, folks, NFL training camps are less than three weeks away. And in that spirit, we are going full speed ahead with the final portion of our 2022 Dash to the Draft series with a recap of the draft halls in the AFC South. And this is a division that includes two of the NFL's bottom feeders hoping to make a leap in the Jaguars and Texans. Last season's number one AFC playoff scene in the Tennessee Titans and a team that I personally consider to be a sleeper Super Bowl contender in the Indianapolis Colts. How do these teams fare in the 2022 NFL draft? Joining us to give us his two cents on the matter is my friend and a man of many hats, Cole Thompson. It's great to have you back with us, Cole. How are you doing, my friend? Hey, Dave. I'm hanging in there. No, no complaints. I'm excited for the start of training camp. Excited for the start of a uh pre-draft process when it comes to 2023 college football. There's there's a lot going on in the world in July, which usually is not the case in the realm of sports. You usually have this as the off time. No, not this year. Oh, absolutely, Cole. Football just doesn't want to take a break these days uh, because uh, not only with the conference realignment college football, yesterday we had Baker Mayfield getting traded the Panthers uh, and football kind of has a reason not to want to take a break given the more serious matters going on in our world. It gives us a better way to uh, deal with the stress and to cope with it, but uh, that's another story. And uh, let's talk about this uh, Jacksonville Jaguars draft class. And the Jaguars for the second year in a row had the first overall pick in the NFL draft. And with that pick, they decided to go with the potential of Trayvon Walker over the proven production of Aiden Hutchinson. And as freakishly athletic as Trayvon Walker is, his production at Georgia was underwhelming. And as Marcus Mosier pointed out during the pre-draft process, players with Walker's level of production in college rarely succeed at the NFL level. However, my good friend Nick Kendall of Mile High Huddle countered that uh, Trayvon Walker was asked to occupy space and let others make plays the vast majority of the time at Georgia. Plus, you can't deny that the splash plays he did make on film were incredible. And in the long run, do you think that Trayvon Walker's production will end up matching his jaw-dropping traits? Well, I think that the production will match what a number one overall pick is. No, I don't. I, I just didn't see it on the film when it comes to the number one overall style of what you're looking for. But that doesn't mean he can't be successful. The one thing that I do like about him is he is an interchangeable player. He lined up as a three technique, a three eye technique, a four technique, a five technique, uh, a standing nine technique during his time at Georgia. And that really was kind of the plan with Dan Lanning's defense was they wanted to be interversatile. They've done that with a lot of different players. Jalen Carter's one, Nolan Smith's another, uh, Devontae Wyatt's another that got drafted in the first round by the Packers. So there's a variety of what you're looking for in terms of production. It's just finding that home at the next level. Now, keep in consideration that this new defensive line that they're utilizing at Jacksonville is going to a 3-4 approach. So they're actually having him as a stand-up outside linebacker. But if he doesn't work out, he could easily put his hand down in the dirt and be a five technique. Similar to what you used to see with Jadavian Clowney when they would run a 3-4 in the Houston Texans organization back in the 2014s, 2015s. So there's a variety of how you can utilize him. But I think the major factor is there's a lot more upside with that versatility of what you're looking for with a guy like Trayvon Walker. And if you look at Trent Baalke's history, he's always gone after the versatile type of defensive lineman. That was his history when he was with San Francisco, getting guys like DeForest Buckner and, and uh, Eric Armstead. So it doesn't come as much of a surprise that they went in that direction, especially when there was kind of that power struggle of, 
Do we trust Balky as our GM long-term? Are we going to listen to our head coach and Doug Peterson? So when you look at that, it always felt like kind of the right pick. I think that you just have to kind of teeter the expectations. You know, when you think of what Trayvon Walker brings, if he wins with a lot of pressures, if he wins with a lot of uh, uh, sack rush rates, if he wins at the point of attack where he's adding, uh, where he's getting in the backfield and getting quarterback hits, but maybe his sack total is around eight to nine every single year, but he still is adding that level. It's not to say that he doesn't live up to the number one hype because if you're always going to compare him to Aiden Hutchinson, who went number two, but that doesn't mean he can't make an impact on this defense. And and the variety factor does help out a lot. You know, it's one of these kind of players that if he doesn't work in this style of defense, that doesn't mean he won't work in a different position in the style of defense where maybe a guy like Hutchinson can only work as a standing technique and he couldn't work as a five technique in this formation. So a lot of questions with Trayvon Walker, lots of potential with Trayvon Walker. That's kind of always been Balky's mantra is go for the potential versus the proven commodity. Uh, but there are a lot of questions when you look at his overall game. I, I won't deny it. There's there's ways to say both takes are right. As in, he may not live up to the number one pick of what we're seeing in the, to the production that Mosher's talking about. But then with Mile High Huddle, what they're talking about is you know, the way that they utilize him could make a big difference in how you say he is productive on this team. Oh, absolutely. If he gets to eight or nine sacks and becomes an elite run defender, he might not necessarily be worth the number one overall pick, but definitely a top 10 pick in the draft. So not a bust whatsoever. I definitely agree. That is a more than fair answer, Cole. And speaking of utilizing Trayvon Walker, uh, the Jaguars' uh, second pick on day one kind of hinted at least to me how they just might do so. And uh, the Jaguars obviously weren't done in the first round as they traded up a few spots back into the round to select a Utah linebacker, Devin Lloyd, with the 27th overall pick. And several analysts, including Mark Schofield, pointed out Devin Lloyd's underrated Micah Parsons-esque versatility to rush off the edge as well as play that off-ball uh, backer position. And right after this pick was made, I actually envisioned a sub-package with Lloyd and Josh Allen on the edge and Trayvon Walker kicking inside. And that's where many believe Trayvon Walker could really feast as a pass rusher at the NFL level. And given that the Jaguars selected another linebacker on day two with Chad Muma, who is a very instinctive quarterback of the defense kind of player, can you see Jacksonville using such a sub-package quite often? I, you know, it's weird because of, I loved the pick. You know, I actually was one of the very few proponents. I think that uh, John Ledyard is the only other guy that I know that had a top 10 grade on Devin Boyd. Like we were just in love and enamored with the way that he played the game. Uh, I, I, I saw a lot of Fred Warner in his tight to where he could play in coverage to where he was a reliable tackler. He's a downhill type thumper type three down linebacker. He can make an impact. You know, what's funny is there have been sub packages that have worked like this before, where you take your outside linebacker who usually is a standing technique, you put his hand in the dirt and allow him to work from the three point stance because you're moving your inside linebacker to the outside. The Texans did this a lot back in 2015 where Clowney would move down. They would play Brian Cushing on the outside and he'd be a blitzer along with Whitney Merciless. So what you would really have would be JJ Watt and Jadavian Clowney coming off the edge or setting the tone to where they would open interiorly to where Cushing would come in from one side, Merciless would come in from the other side and it would add pressure into the backfield, thus flustering the quarterback. So there's going to be a sub package there. I think for a guy like Devin Lloyd, he was an efficient blitzer last year. If you look at his, uh, uh, his uh, win rate total against uh, against pressures in the Pac-12. I think that he was number two among all defensive players uh, behind Noah Sewell from Oregon. So he is a really efficient type of player who can win at all three phases. 
the problem with me when I look at the Chad Moma pick was you just paid for Foy Akulakam uh, a $45 million in a three-year deal, which was very shocking because of he is the field general of the defense. If you go back and watch the way that he played at Atlanta the year before, his main goal was just to play in space. Like he was asked to tackle. He was asked to be near the line of scrimmage. He was asked to be the general. And then you go ahead and you trade up and go get a guy like Chad Muma as well. So it's like a double montage because you add in your blitzing linebacker who also can play in space. And then you you pay a guy an average of $28 million guaranteed to then have him what split reps with the likes of Muma. And this is not a shot on Muma. I actually had Muma a lot higher than most people. I think that he was my third linebacker in terms of grade. I, I thought that he and Christian Harris were like the two guys who were going to surprise some people. I, I like, I understand why they, why the Texans took Harris. I, I don't get the Muma pick. Like, like it, the only reason is because why spend that money when that could have gone to different players, wide receivers worth actually that much amount of money. And, and instead you're going to go pay an off-ball linebacker to be in what, sub-packages? So it was a very interesting pick. It, if they would have gone in a different direction than Lloyd at pick number 27, I think I would have liked the pick more. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where they're going to have a defense that works in a variety of ways to where I think Lloyd's going to be affected. Uh, unfortunately for Muma, I don't know when he gets on the field and, and how he gets on the field. And if he does get on the field, what is his role and, and what is his total snap count to justify a third-round pick? Oh, very good point. Shame on me. I forgot the Jaguars paid a fortune to Foye Oluokan uh, in free agency, and uh, it definitely creates a dilemma there uh, with uh, either him or Muma being the field general and Devin Lloyd being that movable chess piece. Uh, defensive coordinator Mike Caldwell has some interesting decisions ahead as the season progresses. And uh, the Jaguars also spent the first of their two third-round picks, Chad Muma being the other, on Kentucky center Luke Fortner. And I really like this pick because uh, Brandon Linder uh, just retired and uh, they need a quarterback of the offensive line. And do you think uh, Luke Fortner starts week one? I think he has to at this point, you know, bearing a setback or bearing progression from one of the other guys on the roster. You know, he does have experience at multiple positions on the interior offensive line. He's taken reps at left guard. He's taken reps at center uh you know when you go back and you watch him back at the senior bowl he was the one guy who i think was winning most of his reps at the center position even though zion johnson was kind of the big name mentioned there uh, i talked to a couple of agents they really liked him they liked his upside uh, they thought that he was a little bit of an overreach they would have taken him more so on the back end of round one but again supply and demand you need to be able to have a center you lose your you know you lose your go-to center for the last nine years and someone such as Brandon Linder so it, it does make a little bit of sense he is a good run blocker uh, I think that he needs to get a little bit better when it comes to uh, pass protection but overall you know uh, you are a team that is going to utilize the run game you have James Robinson you use the fifth round pick on Snoop Connor as your big burly third down back coming out of Ole Miss. You have uh, Travis Etienne, who you're going to utilize in the passing attack and in the short yarded situations as well. So it's not as if you're going to take away the run game and, and keep in consideration that when he was in Philadelphia, Doug Peterson liked to utilize running backs uh, and a ton of them. You know, you had Jay Ajayi and Jordan Howard and uh, you had Darren Sproles at one point. So there's a variety of runners that you need to use. And the one thing that you can always say is that Philadelphia had a stable offensive line, especially in between the trenches with Jason Kelsey and Brandon Brooks. If you want to bring that same solid offense over with Press Taylor, they're probably going to need to get you to fortify that position more than the interior guard position. And so getting a guy like Fortner, who I think at most was probably the fourth best center. I think he was the third best center behind Cam Jorgensen. 
Tyler Linderbaum can like, and Linderbaum was in his own freaking category. Like I had him as a top five player, like Quentin Nelson S type, like level of impact of what he can bring when healthy, you know, it's a supply versus demand thing, you know? And if you, and the only other thing I would have said is if they would have landed Tyler Linderbaum instead of Devin Lloyd and then gone with Chad Muma, this would have been an A plus draft. Instead, I give it more so a B, but I, I still think that there's a role for Fortner on this offensive line. Thank you very much for that, Cole. And now let's uh, move on to the team that you cover for a living in the Houston Texans. And kind of like the Jaguars, the Texans began their draft by going with potential overproduction by selecting LSU cornerback Derek Stingley Jr. over Sauce Garner with that third overall pick. That said, Stingley had a productive all-star campaign as a freshman in 2019, the same year LSU won the national championship, yet he struggled through injuries and inconsistency in the two subsequent years. Based on your understanding, why did the Texans prefer Stingley instead of the more proven Sauce Gardner? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, they liked him a little bit better in zone. Sauce really did an exceedingly fantastic job in a man formation, but Lovey Smith is his own guy. He has always been his own guy. He likes playing off ball. He likes playing with his, uh, with his cornerbacks and safeties playing in more so a cover two and cover four formation. So they want to get somebody who at least has some bit of experience with that. Under Dave Aranda in 2019, LSU ran predominantly zone style of defense, which was the best year of Singley's career. And the other thing was all the measurables checked out. I, I think that a lot of people were, were more so looking in at Singley's lack of reduction in the last two years. But keep in mind in 2019, multiple scouts and multiple GMs were reporting that if Stingley was able to be eligible for that draft, he easily would have been the number one cornerback at 19 years old. So you're betting on that potential. You're betting on that upside. You're betting on that role to be the focal point of your defense. And he did look healthy when he was at his pro day. And I think that that was a major selling point. I think that if he would be drafted, say, with the Texans' second pick, and there were rumors, there were a lot of conversations that maybe Houston was willing to move up into the top 10 to get another player. You know, a lot of people thought it was for an offensive lineman, or some people thought that they would take a lineman at three and then go draft like Stingley at seven or eight. I don't think anybody would have a problem with it. And again, when you look at a lot of different reporters and a lot of different analysts, Pro Football Focus, um, you know, Pro Football Network had, had their theories on it. A lot of people still had Stingley as the number one cornerback in this year's class. So if he reaches that potential of what he had in 2019 with the Texans in a zone-based system, we're arguably saying that he could be in the same conversation Maybe not as Jalen Ramsey, but I would say Jair Alexander and AJ Terrell and maybe even Marshawn Lattimore and Denzel Ward. He can be a number one cornerback. And, and from the time that he arrived at LSU when he was, I think so, I think he was 17 years old at the time. I'm not even sure if he was 18 yet. He was going up in drills against Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson, and he was shutting them down before practice against the um, Fiesta Bowl when they were facing off against UCF. So he came up there and immediately was going against two receivers that were considering top 10 in the NFL already. And if he can have that type of production and that health and say that healthy, this is a home run pick for the Texans. But again, if he can't, you have to look at the stat line and what you've seen the last three years for sauce and wonder, could he transition to a zone-based defense as fast as say Stingley could to a man-based defense? And if so, there's always going to be that comparison and it doesn't help that one goes at three and the other goes at four. So there really is that extra comparison because they had their option of the pick and then literally the next pick, it completely went to sauce Gardner. 
definitely. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how both of their careers in the NFL pan out. And with their second pick of the first round that they got from the Browns in the uh, Deshaun Watson trade, the Texans went with a Houston native and Texas A&M guard Kenyon Green. And as good as a prospect as Kenyon Green is, I found this pick somewhat puzzling because I thought a better option in Zion Johnson was still available. Why did the Texans opt for Green over Zion Johnson? I think there's two reasons. Number one, uh, this was the worst rushing team in the NFL last year. Uh, they averaged a franchise worst 3.4 yards per carry. They didn't. They scored a franchise low eight rushing touchdowns. Uh, they couldn't. They had I think two games total that they rushed for over 100 yards. And their leading rusher up until week 15 was Mark Ingram, who was traded in week seven to the New Orleans Saints. So that says a lot about your offensive line with the limitations that you had on the ground. In my opinion, there really wasn't a wrong answer between Johnson and Green in terms of first-round talent. I thought both were easy first-round talented players, but one was better in pass protection and one was better in run blocking. I thought Green was the much more efficient run blocker compared to Johnson, and Johnson had a much more better hand usage, uh, footwork when it came to pass pro, good balance with his his, uh, pad level. And the pass protection isn't great in Houston, but the run blocking is atrocious. So they had to get better in that forefront. I think the versatility as well adds a different element for Green. He's played reps at right tackle, left tackle, right guard, left guard. He's a two-time All-American at the guard position as well. So there's some, there's some, you know, at least homegrown feel there. Plus on top of that, you know, you already know the reps that come with it. And the last two years, A&M has been one of the more efficient teams in the SEC when it comes to running the football. Uh, Isaiah Spiller averaged for his career 5.5 yards per carry. You have Devon A-Chain, the speedy running back, who was the change of pace player, led the SEC in yards per attempt last year with a 7.1. And a lot of that was due to the fact that Kenyon Green was one of the lead blockers on this offensive line. And since he arrived in 2019, he was arguably the best offensive lineman Texas A&M has had since I would say Jake Matthews in the early 20, you know, in 2013, 2014 era, like that was probably the last time they had that stable of an offensive lineman who could do whatever you ask and really exceed expectations at that level. I think that, you know, people are also overlooking him a little bit as a pass protector. If you go back and watch the game against Alabama, he had to play left tackle and go up against Will Anderson. He allowed one pressure and zero sacks. So there's at least that potential. And we're talking about, Will Anderson being the number one overall pick in 2023. I mean, if you do that against him, you're probably doing that against at least several lesser known pass rushers. So I think the one thing that saves this deal more than anything else was the trade value they got in return. Um, You know, moving back to uh, moving back from 13 to 15, the picks that they got uh, ESPN uh, stats and info registered it as a second round grade. So It was basically move back two spots, get a guy that you want, get enough value for trades that you later would use to move up and get John Mechie and Damian Pierce with those deals. And you get your players and you also get a good value pick. So it's a bit of a reach. But again, when you look at what they got in return from moving back to two spots and of course the need of a run rushing attack and the run blocking, it didn't make sense. It couldn't in three years. No, but for now, it's very hard to judge the move because of, it's not as if interior offensive line wasn't a need. Oh, excellent point there, Cole. The Texans did indeed move back two spots before taking Kenyon Green. And uh, with the capital they got in that trade back, they uh, used it to uh, trade up and select some good players uh, later on in the draft. And we're going to talk about one of those players in just a bit. But before we do, let's uh, talk about some other investments they made on the defensive side of the ball. 
And uh, in rounds two and three, they selected two more very promising defensive prospects in Baylor safety, Jalen Petrie, who also played for Dave Aranda in college, and uh, a guy who you mentioned, Alabama linebacker Christian Harris. And I'm personally bullish on both of those guys in this uh, Texans defense. But if you had to pick one, which one of those two would you say is more likely to become a long-term piece for the Texans? That's actually a really, that's a really tough one because I, I, I want to pick both. I, I mean, if you were to ask me, what are the two best picks that the Texans made? The order would probably be Jalen Petrie, number one for me. And number two would probably be Christian Harris because of the way Lovey Smith uses his linebackers and just the versatility aspect of what Petrie brings to the table. If I were to pick one right now, I'd say Petrie, just because the way that he's been making an impact in OTAs and in minicamp already, he's earned a starting role. I, I think that when you look at the position as a whole, Everyone is focusing in on the other safety position. Will it be Eric Murray? Will it be uh, Jonathan Owens? Will it be one of these other players? Petrie has made an impact and made his presence known, not just on the uh, in the nickel, but he's also done a really nice job on the back end. I think a lot of people were kind of looking at the Buddha Baker and uh, Tyron Matthew type comps, and he fills that role extremely well. But if you go back and watch him when he was at the uh, Senior Bowl, he was really good on the back end and what the New York Jets were trying to run. And they ran a lot of cover too. So he was playing high. He was taking reps at free safety. He took reps at strong safety. And the way that Smith utilizes the safety position, you have to be able to be good at both. You can't just be a great run defender and mediocre in zone coverage. You have to be able to play coverage extremely well and also be willing to tackle at the line of scrimmage. So Harris, you know, the thing that I love about him is that they're trying him at every single linebacker spot. He took reps with the second team as the Mike. He took reps with the first team as the Sam. He's played the space linebacker role in OTAs. I think that going into the year, the question is how long until he gets into a starting role? You know, they still have Kamaru Guja Hill, who led the team last year with 108 stops. Christian Kirksey resigned a two-year deal. So I'm not sure when he sees the field. So I'll go Petrie as the long-term piece, but Honestly, the way that Lovey Smith talks about Christian Harris, you, you can tell that this was like a homer pick that he wanted to make because he saw a lot of Lance Briggs in his overall game. And the way that the Texans, you know, kind of pivoted, you know, it, it was a very well-known secret that they were all in on Brees Hall. And then the Jets jumped them by one selection and they have to go pivot. Uh, they were not planning. They had no idea that Jalen Peach was going to be there. And then for them to be able to land a guy who so far has made the biggest impact in training camp, I think that says a lot about what his potential can be if he stays healthy and if he continues to develop underneath Lovey Smith. Absolutely, Cole. I am a big fan of Jalen Petrie, and uh, I also really love this pick for the Texans. As you mentioned, they used some of the capital they got in the trade down from 13 to 15 to move up 24 spots on day two to select Alabama wide receiver John Mechie. And Mechie is a guy who uh, might not be flashy like his Alabama teammate Jamison Williams, but he is what you guys down south call a football playing Jesse. He does all the little things right. He is an excellent route runner. He is willing to block. He is just a tough SOB and he is a culture guy. I really, really love this pick uh, for the Texans. And given his uh, route running prowess, would you be surprised if John Mechie becomes the go-to guy for Davis Mills on third down at some point this season? I'm not sure the go-to guy is the right answer, but I do think that he could compete with Nico Collins for that number two spot. And I think that the one thing that you like a lot about Mechie is number one, he has a connection prior to working with the Texans and Pep Hamilton because Hamilton actually recruited him to try to go to Michigan when he was the offensive play caller there. So they know what they were getting from him. And the other thing is that 
he understands that he's not a guy that's going to win with size. He's not a guy that's going to win with speed. He's not a guy that's going to win uh, with physicality. So what he's got to win with is consistency and with precision. And that's what he's really worked on the last two years when he was at Alabama. A lot of people raved about his route running skills, uh, his trajectory of uh, tracking downfield. He did a really nice job finding the ball in the air and working toward it. You know, uh, last season, there were a couple of major mishap throws from Bryce Young that actually weren't really mishaps because Mechie just came out and made catches. He is a willing run blocker. Uh, I think that everyone is so focused in on the hit heard around the world from the 2020 SEC championship game uh, when he knocked the crap out of the uh, Georgia safety but he was, besides that, an also really good run block. I mean, Florida safety, but he also was a really good run blocker this past season. The major concern is when do they play him? Because he's coming off of a torn ACL. And the other thing that you got to keep in consideration, Nick Casario has said with all of these picks, they're investments. They're not going to rush anybody back. So if Derek Singley is not ready to play week one, he ain't playing week one. If John Mechie is not going to be able to go full speed week three, he's missing the first two weeks and he's missing week three. So I think that that chemistry that you're trying to find with Davis Mills is going to take some time, but they are going to utilize him in the slot. One thing that you've known about young receiver, I mean, young quarterbacks and young receivers, they trust the slot element more than anything else because they understand the cadence and the rhythm of what they're looking for in that aspect. But I do think that you have to look at the pitcher as a whole. Um, if he's out there, I think that he'll make an impact because of the receiving core outside of Nico Collins and Brandon Cooks is, I mean, it's it's an open competition. That's probably the best way I can put it now with a Deshaun Hamilton out for the year. And uh, they, they're going to need some help in the slot. So could I see him be the number two, number three receiver? Yeah. Do I think that he will very early on? No. I, I think if he's not 100% healthy, they're not playing him. Very, very important thing you just highlighted about Nick Casario and not wanting to rush any of these uh, draft picks who have uh, injury issues uh, onto the field. And uh, that is uh, something that I think should be emulated league-wide. I got to play the long game, as they say. And now let's move on to the Indianapolis Colts, who will have Matt Ryan under center for them this season. And they did Matt Ryan some excellent favors on day two. Keep in mind, they did not have a first round pick this year because of the Carson Wentz trade. But I think the Colts did a beautiful job with all three of their picks on day two. And it began at uh, 53 overall with Cincinnati wide receiver, Alec Pierce. And I like Alec Pierce a lot. He's a very good player, but I had one qualm about this pick. Alec Pierce, like I said, he's a good player, but he is extremely similar to Michael Pittman, who is the wide receiver one down in Indy right now. And what differences, if any, exist in Alec Pierce's game that could complement Michael Pittman's game well? I think the one is that you know that Alec Pierce is probably going to be your vertical option, which means that you can turn Michael Pittman into your possessional receiver. I think that Pittman has a little bit of stronger hands. I think he's a bit, a little bit of a better route runner, but I do think the speed of what you have with a guy like Pierce probably outweighs what you have with Pittman. So yeah, their frames are similar. Yes. Their hands are similar. Yes. They can run the same kind of route concepts. I was actually a lot lower on a guy like Alec Pierce than a lot of other people. I thought that he was, probably a mid third round grade. So I wasn't really high on the pick, but to be fair, one of the main things that they have been missing for the last two years was that vertical presence in Indianapolis. I think that the regression of T.Y. Hilton came a lot quicker than anybody else expected. And so that put a lot of pressure on Pittman to step up. I think Pittman did a really nice job with that. If he can be the possessional receiver, then they work with Paris Campbell taking over for Zach Pascal on the slot. And then 
find a way to make Pierce like that vertical, that guy who works deep downfield after the catch kind of player. That's where you want to utilize him. It wasn't a bad pick. I thought there were other receivers that maybe you could go with that would have made a much more sense because of the are the similarities between him and Pittman. But to say that they're the exact same player is probably a little bit bullish, just like to say that Pierce can't make an immediate impact because of the way that they are going to utilize the passing attack with Matt Ryan as quarterback definitely is like another bullish kind of statement. Very, very good analysis there, Cole. And with their first of two third round picks, the Colts selected one of the freakiest athletes in this year's draft, Virginia tight end Jelani Woods. Jelani Woods, I believe, scored a perfect 10 out of 10 RAS score. And uh, as much potential as he has in the passing game, he comes into the NFL as an excellent, and I mean an excellent run blocker. And given that the Colts arguably have the best running back in the NFL right now, Jonathan Taylor, and the best run blocking offensive line led by uh, Quint Nelson and, and Ryan Kelly, uh, do you expect Jelani Woods to get significant work as that inline blocking tight end for the Colts this season? This was actually one of my favorite picks in the draft. I, I, I actually was a lot higher on Jelani Woods. I remember watching him at Virginia. I think it was like week two or whatever week it was against Clemson. He had two big red zone touchdowns. And I just remember seeing, remember hearing his name at Oklahoma state and that he was only used as a run blocker. And then you see him with Bronco Mendenhall's offense. And it's like, Oh, he can actually be a difference maker in the red zone because of that six, seven frame is just going to out bully linebackers. And it's too big to go against safety. So I really like that pick. And what was funny is Nobody really knew who he was until the like pre-draft process started going on. And then he grates out as the most athletic tight end in a very, 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 very deep. I wouldn't say great tight end group, but a very deep, like number two tight end room. The one thing is that he's going to fit the role that was missing last year that he had taken over by Jack Doyle and Doyle's been dealing with injuries. It's why he retired, but Mo Alley Cox is a lot like Evan Ingram in the sense that you want to play him in the flex. You want him to be more so like a Kyle Pitts type role, and they're going to want to utilize as much 12 personnel as possible to where they have a flex tight end doing the inline blocking against the safety working up the field, but then a tight end like Woods in the three-point stance, getting that extra block against the defensive end, closing in the gap, and allowing Jonathan Taylor to move the football efficiently on the ground. So I think there's a lot of potential for Woods to be one of the big surprises of this year's draft class. I thought that this was a very smart pick by Ballard and it comes at no surprise that he finds a way to just add more pieces to a roster that, you know, everyone else is saying, how did you land him? And, and more specifically in two years from now, when you see him get to an all pro level, why did we overthink this draft? Like, like that's kind of where you go with a player like Jelani Woods. I, I, I thought the Colts had two of my favorite top 10 picks and uh, this was number two or number one for sure and i assume this next guy was the other of those picks that you alluded to i'm talking about central michigan offensive tackle bernard raymond the austrian sensation that the colts uh, selected with the 77th overall pick and this was a guy that uh, draft twitter was substantially higher on than the nfl was why do you think raymond fell all the way to the third round and do you think he'll be the Colts' starting left tackle come week one well, I'm glad that you said that most of NFL draft Twitter was high on him because I wasn't. I was actually one of the few that was very low on him. I think about part of the reason why is because if he's a 25-year-old who has been playing inside of uh, Central Michigan, he's also transitioned from tight end to offensive tackle. So when you look at all of those ifs and those ramifications that come with it, it's a short leash. Like you're not going to get that much better at 25 years old if you can't already start improving. So to my belief right now, he's done a decent job in training camp, but you know, you're still learning the position. 
as one of the oldest players in this year's draft class. And the other thing that you have to worry about is there's going to be a whole new offensive formation that you're going to have to learn. And the other thing is that he's probably going to have to start because they lost Eric Fisher. He didn't resign in free agency. So he's likely coming in to play that left tackle spot. And the reality factor is that there's no room for error. I mean, this is a team that probably on paper feels like the best in the AFC South. This is also a team that potentially feels like that they could easily be a sleeper in the AFC. But if you have a hole on your offensive line, which has been the bread and butter for the last five years in Indianapolis, that becomes a concern. And one of the biggest concerns that I look at right now going into this season is that left tackle spot. And unfortunately, I think that they waited a little too long to draft tackle. But at the same time, this was probably the best available, which does say a lot about the drop off from the top names at the tackle position to the secondary players. That's a more than fair observation there, Cole. And last but not least, let's talk about the reigning number one seed, Tennessee Titans. And uh, they made a blockbuster trade on uh, night one of the draft, trading A.J. Brown to the Philadelphia Eagles for that 18th overall pick. And with that pick, they selected a guy that many compared to A.J. Brown, an Arkansas wide receiver, Traylon Burks. Lance Zierlein's uh, pro comp for Traylon Burks was A.J. Brown, albeit with more wiggle. Do you believe Traylon Burks will be a long-term upgrade over A.J. Brown? Traylon Burks is one player that, like, when I look back at draft Twitter, they tried so hard to make him Debo Samuel. And, like, I hated how that trend, like, started off because if you really watch his game, he is a clone of A.J. Brown. But the problem with that is, and I get what John Robinson was thinking, if I can't pay A.J. Brown, well, how about I just draft an A.J. Brown clone? The question is his health. Uh, you know, th th this has been very well reported by multiple people in the know in Arkansas. He has dealt with a concussion history in the past that may limit his overall rep count. You know, you've watched him uh, in Tennessee. He had asthma and he was very limited in practice for the first couple of weeks because of he was out of breath. Uh, I, I just feel like that when you go ahead and make moves like this and you try to outsmart everyone in there, what you're really doing is you're putting yourself in a regressional standpoint. You know, now the expectation is for Burks to come in and be an immediate contributor. I don't think he's going to have to be the number one receiver because you do have uh, Robert Woods coming over via the trade in the off season. But again, Woods is coming off a torn ACL. We're not sure when he's going to be available. It could be by mid season. He comes back and then afterward, what's going to be the Titans record then. So it, it was like, it was one of those picks to where, if he would have gone to Philadelphia, like I don't think anybody would be complaining because it's like, oh, they got an AJ Brown clone. But instead, you're betting on the potential of him becoming the next AJ Brown when you have AJ Brown on the roster and all you have to do is just pay him a little bit more money. I mean, like to me, that was also the domino that fell with all these other receivers getting paid because afterwards you watch Hunter Renfro get paid and then Terry McLaurin get paid. And that's kind of the market for what Debo Samuel is looking for and what the market BK Metcalf is looking for. So, you know, I, it was a pick that like, I really, really wanted to like, but I just can't get so far behind because of if I'm wanting to see the production of AJ Brown thrive in the music city, I'm just going to pay AJ Brown. And instead they just, Trade him away and got a clone and hope for the best. So there's expectations now for him to meet when he goes into this first year. And I'm just not sure he can go ahead and do that. Definitely. It uh, will very likely take Traylon Brooks some time to acclimate to the NFL game. And in the second round with the 35th overall pick, the Titans went with 
tape over traits by selecting Auburn quarterback Roger McCreary. And Roger McCreary, he's a guy that has a middling athleticism and extremely short arms for the cornerback position, but you just cannot deny his tape was absolutely superb uh, in college. How high were you on Roger McCreary during the pre-draft process? And do you think he can be a top 10 to 15 corner in the NFL, despite his uh, short arms and a middling athleticism? Top 10 is a big reach, but I'll be one of the very first out there to say I was a lot higher on Roger McCreary than most. I gave him a first round grade. Like that's how much I liked him because of there's some things that you can teach in a player and there's some things that you just have. And the alpha dog mentality that he possessed in the SEC for two seasons, I think that everyone just looks at last year and goes, oh, well, you know, he faced off against Jamison Williams. And he faced off against Traylon Burks and he held his own against Texas A&M. Yeah, that, that, that's fine and dandy. But he also did it the year before against Devonta Smith. And he also did it the year before against other receivers. And he's also done this and be the and he's been the number one cornerback in Auburn for two years. And he's never once shied away from competition. He's never once shied away from the physical aspect of the game. He's liked making tackles. He's enjoyed hit. Uh, he's enjoyed uh, getting a punch at the line of scrimmage and really dissecting that. And, and those are the type of players that Mike Grable loves. He, they love the fact that they have somebody who can go in and be that alpha dog mentality type player. And they're kind of missing that, you know. I, I'll be the first to say that I was one of the very few who was not high on Caleb Farley coming out in 2020 uh, one. So when you look at what you get in 2022, it's not to say that you're going to replace him after one year, because he's a first round pick. You're going to do everything in your power to see what you have in Farley, but it maybe gives you a one, two, three combination with Christian Fulton. Maybe you move him inside the slot. Maybe you have Farley play on the outside. Uh, and then you have McCreary. I think McCreary needs to get a little bit better in off-ball coverage, but he didn't do a bad job of that either last year with Brian Harson. There's a lot to like about McCreary. And I actually thought that this was probably their best value pick and also probably their overall best selection in, in, in the entire class. You could definitely make that argument, Cole. And uh, moving along to one of their two third-round picks with the 86th overall pick, they selected a guy that some thought would be selected with a number two overall pick by the Detroit Lions. But the NFL, just like us, was sour on this year's crop of quarterbacks. And I'm obviously talking about Liberty's Malik Willis. And uh, Ryan Tannehill uh, has a pretty bloated contract, but as early as next season, Tennessee can get out of that contract but it will be far less expensive to release him in 2024 than in 2023. But that said, can you see Malik Willis taking over this offense as early as sometime next season? Because I kind of get a Steve McNair kind of upside with Malik Willis. And uh, you obviously know what Steve McNair did for the Titans. There's an upside with Malik Willis because of the rushing aspect and because of the agility and because of the arm. You know, I don't think anybody's going to argue that for arm strength, Willis outweighs Tannehill tenfold. I don't think anybody's going to argue that the ability and agility in the backfield Willis outweighs Tannehill tenfold. I think the main factor is the consistency and the completion rating. Those are two major aspects. And the other thing is that when you play in a style of offense that Hugh Freeze likes to run, and if you go back and watch his tape with Chad Kelly at uh, Ole Miss, they basically say, here, go through your three-step drawback, and if nothing's open, have fun in the backfield. Just run around, make some plays, keep drives alive, and do what you can. The NFL is different. The NFL is not going to handle that. You know, you're going to have that three second block to where offensive tackles are going to be able to hold it. And then a defensive lineman is going to shuck and shoot his way up the backfield and then go on a rushing spree with the likes of Willis. And one of the major factors that everyone said was, 
oh, they remind him so much of Lamar Jackson. No, Lamar maybe doesn't have as strong as an arm, but he was a much better passer. He was better with the completion. Uh, he was better with the decision-making. He played that kind of erratic, just kind of moving groove football, but he also played by the style of offense that Bobby Petrino really loved to run in Louisville. So that factored into him being a first-round pick, and it factored into why Malik Willis was a third-round pick. I, I think that the biggest thing for Willis is – He's going to have to learn Todd Downing's offense extremely quick, and he's going to have to start playing football the way that the play design is, not just backyard sports and say, here, try and get it, F it. Traylon Burks is down there somewhere. It's not going to work in the pros, and it'll work on a few plays, but eventually defensive coordinators are going to catch up to it. They've caught up with a certain number of quarterbacks in the past, and that's kind of the same thing. He's got to basically – the best way that I can put it is I feel like that when Josh Allen was uh, met Ken Dorsey, Ken Dorsey said, all right, you know, football. Yeah. Hit the delete button in the, in the file. I'm going to teach you how to play football the right way. And then lo and behold, when Dorsey came in, they taught him how to play like Cam Newton. And now we're talking about him as an MVP every single year and arguably the best young quarterback, not named Patrick Mahomes. I think that that's going to have to be the case for Malik Wallace when he goes into meetings with Todd Downing, when he goes into meetings with Ryan Tannehill, you know that football that you were playing underneath Hugh Freeze? Hit the delete button. Throw it in the trash. Don't even worry about it. It's time to start learning how to play this way because this is the way that's going to keep you alive. This is the way that's going to keep you active. And this is the way that's going to acclimate your skills and get you to be a better, more well-rounded player in the league today. He is Cole Thompson, ladies and gentlemen. You can catch his work at fannation.com, among other sites. And you can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Cole Thompson. Cole, thank you so much once again for joining us. But before he let you go, I want you to name a player either drafted or an undrafted free agent from each team that we have not yet discussed that you think could have a successful NFL career. And let's start in Jacksonville. Jacksonville is weird. Um, Cause again, we, we named most of the guys that I think are going to be successful. If I have to go with one, uh, I will say that coming from the sec Monteric Brown from Arkansas, maybe makes a little bit of sense. I think that he could be, kind of a very good gunner. I think he offers some value in the nickel position. Uh, I thought that, you know, it was a very good pick at the time. One of the major factors was a lot of people have him as a fifth round grade for him to go in the seventh. There's good value. So I think he's going to carve out a role for himself sooner rather than later. So I'll go with him for Jacksonville. Houston is a challenging one because I could really go with anyone. I, I mean, honestly, I could see every single one of their players starting. Uh, the one I will go with that I think has the potential to be really intriguing is Tegan Kirantano, the tight end from Oregon State. Uh, you know, the thing about him is that he played a very similar game to George Kittle when he was coming out of Iowa. And he even modeled this game after George Kittle saying, I want to be as proficient as a blocker in college because if I know when I get to the next level, I can always work on my route running. I can always work on my hands, but the way to get on the field is for me to improve as a blocker. So I think that because the Texans want to run a bunch of 12 personnel with new offense coordinator, Pep Hamilton, he could find his way into a starting role. You know, Brevin Jordan is kind of that flex tight end that they really like, but the other tight end there's a lot of question marks with it. Farrell Brown, Anthony O'Claire, uh, you know, they have two fullbacks and uh, Jokovic and Questenberry uh, uh, um, uh, that are also going to work in reps at the tight end spot. So I think Tegan Kirantano could be a name to watch for. Uh, the guy that you didn't name, and, and that was my probably number two or number three pick, was Nick Cross out of Maryland. I, I loved that pick for what you were looking for with uh, the Indianapolis Colts. And he's a rangy safety that can play. He's willing to hit. Uh, the one thing that I really liked about his overall demeanor when he was at Maryland was he was 
extremely athletic and he was a really, really good run tackler. So he played extremely well in space, but he made plays on the back end when asked to play in his own defense. Um, they lost Kari Wills and they need to upgrade with the other safety positions. So cross very well could be a starter come week one. And I would not be shocked. And then I think for Tennessee, the other name that we probably didn't mention was Hassan Haskins. I think that what you needed for last season was a solid compliment to Derrick Henry. And the, the reality factor is, one of the main reasons why Derrick Henry has been so dominant is he's been healthy, but you've started to notice a trend. I would say in the last few years, when a running back gets injured, that's the first of many that's on the way. And so Henry coming off of the, uh, the shin injury and the ankle injury, you know, no one's going to say that he's going to regress so immensely to where he's no longer an efficient running back, but he may not be the guy that gets 1,700 yards every year. And when you have Ryan Tannehill on your offense and when you don't know what you have at the receiver position, you have to be efficient on the ground game. And I think that a guy like Hassan Haskins, who did a very nice job playing that secondary runner role along with Blake Corum in Michigan last year and had some very phenomenal games against very talented defenses. I think that everyone wants to focus in on the Ohio State game. He was the main reason Michigan won that game and probably ended up winning the Big Ten that year because of his efficiency and vision on the ground. He's got that hard press knows can really work well uh, for those extra yards. I, I would not be shocked to see him take over that Deontay Foreman role and, and really triple that produ production in, in no time. I, I very much like that pick. Cole Thompson, my man, you're incredible. Thank you so much once again for joining us. And that's it for today here on Sports Crunch. But our recaps of the 2022 NFL draft classes will continue soon, as will our special Beyond the Chap series with the 2022 Denver Broncos cheerleaders. So stay tuned. Meanwhile, be sure to follow me on Twitter at dcrom 59 and on Instagram and now TikTok at Sports Crunch with dcrom. And remember, that's Crunch with a K. For Cole Thompson, this is David Cromwell saying so long and whatever you do, Choose love, choose kindness, choose compassion, choose empathy, and keep the people of Buffalo, Uvalde, Texas, Highland Park, Illinois, and the brave, inspiring people of Ukraine in your thoughts, prayers, and whatever actions possible. Until next time, cats and kittens, stay cool. <laughs>